Education, or the politics of education, dominated our headlines. So did affordable housing, and since this is South Florida, so did immigration and Latin America. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. With the year nearing its end, we'll look back in the next hour at some stories that helped define 2023 in South Florida. For starters, education and the often bitter debate here involving diversity, parental rights versus gay rights, and book banning. We'll also discuss how the affordable housing crisis finally took center stage across the region, and we'll examine the American immigration crisis and the Latin American leaders like Venezuela's who made it worse. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Well, you have to admit, education was a priority in South Florida in 2023. It's just that it wasn't a priority in the way we usually think of education being a priority, or frankly, the way we want it to be. 2023 was the year Florida and especially South Florida classrooms became politicized as part of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis' culture war agenda. The claim was that parental rights were being restored, but critics say what often resulted was an assault on learning rights and on the acceptance of often marginalized and vulnerable students such as gay and transgender youths. Book banning became a fear, if not a reality, in elementary schools. Programs like Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, or DEI, were accused of pushing leftist or woke political agendas on high school and college campuses. Even the horrors of slavery were sanitized for history instruction so as not to make white kids feel guilty about America's past. Joining me now to assess all this education disputation is WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. Kate, how are you? I'm good. Now, other Republican-led states are using education and, quote, parental rights as a culture war weapon, but Florida is considered the leader they're trying to emulate. You mentioned, Kate, that this has been, quote, the year of self-censorship for schools here. Was that the goal of Governor DeSantis's anti-woke crusade in education or just one of them? Well, I think what we've seen is that all of this has coincided with Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential ambitions, right. his, his presidential election campaign. You know, certainly he's been traveling back and forth to Iowa and to New Hampshire and has really made a name for himself on these culture war issues since the onset of the pandemic. Uh, and we have seen that that approach, these pieces of legislation echoing and, and copied in, in other states across the country. And it seems, you know, a, a lot of this is aimed at reshaping the public discourse in public schools. You know, public schools, certainly in South Florida, they're huge employers. They're huge landowners in, in our communities. Uh, and there are millions of children, you know, in this state who are spending their days in, in these public schools. And, you know, new generations can be shaped and formed, certainly, in our schools. But as you mentioned, when you say that this has been the year of self-censorship mm -hmm. uh, for schools, a lot of that crusade has resulted in schools and education systems across the state sort of second-guessing themselves in terms of curriculum, no? 
Sure. Absolutely. I think we've seen that in a number of different capacities. You know, there's the law and there's what is done. There's the interpretation of the law. Of the law. And what school, the, the difficult situation that school districts have been put in uh, is trying to interpret these state laws, feeling that they don't have enough clarity on what critics say are, are quite broad laws, uh, and it being applied in, in many different ways And the application really varying from district to district, even from school to school, from administrator to administrator, teacher to teacher, uh, as far as, you know, what books are allowed to be on shelves. Well, let's look at some of them. Last year, DeSantis got the so-called Don't Say Gay Law passed, which was supposed to shield younger elementary students from any discussion of anything LGBTQ. But this year he was able to push through an expansion of Don't Say Gay to include all grade levels, even high school students. What were some of the biggest effects of that move? One of the examples that we saw was with the advanced placement psychology course. Right. Uh, so this happened at the beginning of, of the school year, the 2023-2024 school year, where school districts were thrown in disarray, basically, when the college board, the organization that runs AP courses, and the Florida Department of Education had this showdown, basically, over can gender identity and sexual orientation be a part of these AP psychology courses, which, again, are college-level right. courses. And college it's, and level it's one of the most popular AP courses in the state for students. Incredibly right? popular. Yeah. And again, a way for students to earn college credit while they're still in high school, which is a, a great opportunity. And so basically, the Department of Education, the State Department of Education said these topics cannot be taught. The college board said, if you don't teach those, this is not an AP course. And any college credits, you know, would be null and void. You cannot call this AP. And so that through school districts, you know, with all of their kids signed up for this class saying, what do we do when school starts imminently? Ultimately, the State Department of Ed did forge a compromise. Students were able to take that class uh, in Broward County. And in one example, you know, that county had parents sign consent forms for students to take the class. But it it did go forward. Mm -hmm. But another example, also in Broward, public schools in the last school year, 2022-2023, there was no sex education in Broward County Public Schools, the second largest district in the state, in part due to the Don't Say Gay law and and its implications. So the initial proposed cuts to the curriculum included cutting out whole sections on contraception, on human anatomy, really muddying language around sexual violence and abuse. Uh, Ultimately, the school board threw out that scaled back curriculum and and did pass more comprehensive curriculum, but it, it still needs to be approved by the state. So now I acknowledge we can honestly debate whether a third grader is ready to handle subjects like homosexuality and transgenderism. Then again, I think we can also debate whether it's right to hide from that third grader that one of their classmates might have two dads or two moms. So is it reasonable to suggest that when they expanded Don't Say Gay this year to all grade levels, including teenagers who are mature enough to handle these issues, DeSantis and company were simply exposing their more overarching reason for all this, which is not just to protect little kids from LGBTQ issues, but rather to drive the existence of the LGBTQ community back into the closet, into the shadows, out of sight. 
That's certainly the concern for for those teachers, for those families. I will say on on the issue of age appropriateness, you know, many queer children know from a very young age that they don't fit into these conventional boxes of of gender and sexuality. We saw a a very high profile case of a trans student in Broward County this year uh, who you know, laid out in a court case that from as early as age three, she knew that she was a girl uh, and expressed herself in that way. Uh, so some children, certainly children of of queer parents, of trans parents, are living this. They are living this at, at very young ages. Right. And that's sort of the same idea behind the anti-woke crusade in schools regarding racial issues. No, I, I mean, just as Tallahassee doesn't want our kids to know about homosexuality, it seems it doesn't want them exposed to the uglier and more uncomfortable facets of American history. And this year, that turned out to include even the history of slavery. What do critics fear can happen in the classroom when you try to rewrite reality that way? Mm. And so on, on the issue of slavery, again, earlier this year, the state Board of Education adopt new teaching standards uh, that included uh, that enslaved people, quote, developed skills, which in some instances could be applied to their personal benefit. Right. Tried to put a positive spin on slavery. Yeah. Yes. Which sparked uh, massive backlash. I think, you know, for for scholars and historians, they say there is a long pattern, a long history of you know, the use of state power to suppress ideas and information, a dangerous history of that, um, even in democratically elected governments, trying to excise history that doesn't suit their ideology, that doesn't suit their, their political needs. Um, and, you know, historians are, and, you know, parents, you know, public, you know, free speech advocates are, are incredibly concerned about the implications for what our children are, are able to be taught, what teachers are able to say. Now, all that, too, has had its effects in the classroom, including the most recent question of whether Florida students will now even be able to take the Advanced Placement or AP African American Studies course. Where, where does that all stand right now? Right. So this was, again, the State Department of Education rejecting this AP African-American Studies course, uh, saying that it's contrary to Florida law and, quote, significantly lacks educational value. A number of schools in the state were poised to pilot this course uh, this school year. Hmm. That went out the window. It's still going forward in other states. According to the Miami Herald, there is one private school in Miami that is continuing to pilot the course. But on the national level, uh, the AP African American Studies course is on track to launch nationally in the 2024-2025 school year. Okay. Um, but at this point, it seems that will not generally be available in Florida schools. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about this past year's politicization of education. So, Kate, this all brings us to perhaps the biggest education controversy of the year, book banning, and that self-censorship we referred to. The main target were books that might raise those gender and racial issues we just talked about, and one of the big drivers behind it is an organization called Moms for Liberty. How much influence do you see groups like theirs wielding when it comes to what our kids can and can't read now? And is it inordinate influence, as as many have suggested? 
I think they've had a significant impact uh, based on, you know, sitting in, in school board meetings and, and what the discourse is like right now. What, you know, what is driving people to come out to school board meetings? Um, but according to PEN America and authors and, and free speech advocacy organization, there have been more book challenges in Florida this year than in any other state in the country. And, you know, that's includes a, a range of, you know, outright bans, situations where books are restricted from certain grades in certain schools. Uh, so it, it varies case by case. Uh, but, you know, one example we saw this year in Miami-Dade uh, was the restriction on Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem, The right. Hill We Climb. Mm-hmm. At, the, at the Bob Graham Education Center That's here in right. Miami-Dade County. That's yeah. right, a K-8 school. A K-8 um, school, and those books had to be moved, though, from elementary uh, access to only middle school. That's right. Access, That's right. Yeah. Now, we, of course, we have to bring up the, the the question of will all of this be affected by the recent scandal involving Moms for Liberty leader Bridget Ziegler, who is in a real legal mess with her husband, the chairman of the Republican Party in Florida, over a alleged rape that he committed, but also a bisexual relationship that she was having with the woman making this allegation. How is all of this going to affect that influence of this Moms for Liberty group that we've just been talking about? Well, uh, the national organization leaders have been distancing themselves somewhat, you know, emphasizing that Bridget Ziegler resigned from her role as a co-founder. A woman trying to get all things LGBTQ banned from our schools, admitting to a bisexual relationship. I mean, that's the definition of of hypocrisy, no? It's striking. Uh, And to think of the influence, again, that this organization has had, you know, they, they boast now 300 chapters across the country. So... Whatever happens to Bridget Ziegler and the accusations against her husband going forward, this organization seems poised to continue to have a nationwide impact. Now, let's pivot a bit here, Kate, to how all of this affected higher education in Florida. And let's start with the letters DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. Why did that become a culture war boogeyman on our college campuses this year? So again, as part of the governor's anti-woke push, it has really thrown uh, a lot of doubt on on colleges and universities as far as what they're able to to do, what kinds of programs they're able to support. You know, it's so many of our our colleges and universities, they're trying to, you know, recruit students of color, staff of color, uh, you know, students and staff from low-income backgrounds. There are all sorts of programs and efforts trying to make our, especially public colleges and universities, reflect the state of Florida, reflect our communities. Um, And there are doubts uh, about some of those programs being able to go forward with public funds. Um, And for individual professors, you know, something we've seen is you know, they're changing the titles of their courses to try and stay under the radar, even if they may not change their curriculum per se, uh, change their conversations they're having in the classroom, just trying to stay under the radar if, if anybody is searching their courses. And some who haven't played ball, as you reported earlier this year uh, in a case out of Palm Beach Atlantic University, they've gotten fired sometimes, no? Yeah, so that was a situation of of a professor at a private university, Palm Beach Atlantic, uh, who believes that he was fired for including racial justice in his curriculum. 
and, and this was used in his excuse for DeSantis's takeover of the state's marquee liberal arts college, New College in Sarasota, and refashioning it into a conservative Christian-style school. Has that takeover been successful, and could we maybe see that repeated at other Florida public colleges and universities? I think it still remains to be seen with New College. It certainly depends on your definition of success. You know, for the the students, the alumni, the faculty at that school have always prided its independence, its, you know, individual focused curriculum, really letting students guide their education. And, you know, I, I don't think that they see this as their definition of success. Um, as far as, you know, other extended influence over other public colleges and universities. I think we're continuing to see that as searches for university presidents play out uh, at our state schools. Uh, it's a really difficult time to lead a public university, uh, and, and many folks are getting out of that job. And it's been a challenge uh, to find um, academics and, and experienced hands ready to step in. Right, which brings me to my last question. Will this be a place in the long run that serious students and scholars want to come to anymore if this continues? That's absolutely the concern. Uh, you know, Florida has been known nationally for its incredible public institutions, the University of Florida, you know, a research leader. Um, but, and I'm hearing anecdotally of a lot of searches for professors, for faculty that are really coming up dry uh, because folks are, are not willing to hang their career um, on on these schools if they don't feel that they can trust that they have educational independence. All right. Kate Payne is our WLRN education reporter. Kate, thanks and happy holidays. Thanks so much. Still to come, our affordable housing crisis finally became front and center in 2023. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Let's start with a very basic but very unsettling fact. In Miami-Dade County, the median household income is less than $60,000, but that's more than 10 times less than the median price for a single-family home in Miami-Dade, which is $622,000. The situation's not much better anywhere else in South Florida, where our traditionally low-wage economy crashes every day with rocketing demand for our subtropical real estate. But something changed in 2023. South Florida's affordable housing crisis became a hot-button issue, and so did efforts to solve it. Broward County just launched a 30-year plan to build some 150,000 affordable units, and the county's cities are being expected to pitch in. Palm Beach County this month passed a bond measure for more accessible rental housing development, and Miami-Dade County has suddenly doubled its investment in affordable workforce housing. Are we finally taking this seriously? Joining me now to answer that question are WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter, Wilkin Brutus, Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III, as well as investigative reporter and expert on all things Miami-Dade, Danny Rivero. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Wilkin, let's go from north to south here and start with your reporting up in Palm Beach County. As I mentioned, Palm Beach just passed a big new bond measure for more rental unit development. Is renting housing as unaffordable now up there as buying it is? 
Tim, for a while it's been neck to neck, according to researchers from Florida Atlantic University. Wow. But now new data from Redfin shows that it's actually cheaper to buy than rent in Palm Beach County. Really? But local real estate experts say the median sales price for a single family home in Palm Beach County was at 600000 in October. That's an increase of more than 4% since last year. And so the median income is about 68000 So if you do the math, yeah, it's, it's still not quite much, expensive. Not, not much different than Miami-Dade. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, rent or buying is still quite expensive for m- many people in Palm Beach County. You also reported recently on a first-of-its-kind study that indicates racially discriminatory housing practices still exist in Palm Beach County, and which concludes that economically, the county is really just shooting itself in the foot in this regard, no? Yeah, uh, the list of discriminatory housing practices goes on. Legacy of redlining, racial Uh. bias in the home appraisal process. Uh, The lead author of that study, Mm -hmm. Ned Murray, told me the lack of affordable housing essentially stunts the growth of the county's working population because the economy in Palm Beach County is dependent on key sectors such as leisure and hospitality, healthcare, agriculture, uh, agriculture, retail, you name it. And this is where the vast majority of black and Hispanic folks work. And so it's simple. The more difficult it is to find shelter, the more difficult it is for businesses to hire. And thrive. And thrive. Yeah, very good point. Gerard, moving down to Broward County, the housing finance director there calls the affordable housing problem, quote, overwhelming. What makes the situation so bad in Broward? The situation in Broward is bad for a lot of the same reasons it's bad throughout South Florida. So wages not keeping up with the spike in rents. But um, something that we can't do here is build out. We're pretty much out of land, and it's been repeated by experts at housing workshops and county commissioners and city commissioners that the only way to build is up. Aha. So we need more vertical living units then. Right. And that's part of something the county is doing to incentivize affordable housing is allowing developers to build higher if they have more units at that affordable rate. Right. That's interesting. So Broward County's, let's let's call it like Miami-Dade's, that ur- the urban uh, development boundary, for, for lack of a better term, uh, to, the, to the west is as strict, if not stricter, than, than, than Miami-Dade County's in that regard? I'd say a bit stricter. I mean, there's not even a question of building west. And I, I know we have um, the water management district right up against Broward County um, out there to the west. No, but that, that's, a, that's a great point. Space is really, geography is such a, a factor here. Now, as, as you mentioned, that, so Broward is now embarking on a major 30-year affordable housing development plan, and they're telling the county cities they better pitch in. How much is this project going to cost, and how many units are they hoping to build in the end? Well, well like you said in the intro, um, 150,000 units. Um, the final report, which comes out in January, so it's obviously not out yet. There's no exact number. But for years now, the cities that have not been building affordable housing, which in Broward County is just about 25 or 26 of the 31 cities, have been putting money, giving money to the county uh-huh. for not building that affordable housing. That's something they want to stop and say, no, you guys need to start building affordable housing here and stop giving us money. And does it look like the municipalities in Broward are getting on board now? From the what, the county meetings, it seems like neighborhoods like Parkland and Weston 
and Coral Springs are realizing the need for it, need for people who work in the area to live there, and they're becoming more on board with it. The county is also getting a bit more strict about it. Yeah. Now, Danny, Miami-Dade is obviously still ground zero in South Florida when it comes to the out-of-whack housing disparities. But you reported recently that the county has doubled its investment in affordable housing. And, and I know you recently rode around neighborhoods looking at what that means. What, what did you find? Right. Well, the, the short of it is there's a massive building boom going on right now. I mean, a lot of this was financed before interest rates shot up. But there's so much development right now of multifamily, large scale housing. And as you mentioned, when I actually went through the the reports from from the Department of Public Housing and, and Community Development, the funding for this from the county government has doubled since early 2021. So there mm-hmm. they have about two hundred sixty million dollars invested in this right now, and the the focus of it related to what Bro- what what uh, Gerard was just saying in Broward County. The focus is high density, the the, mm-hmm. the rarest commodity in all of South Florida for building is land. Yeah. So the county is really putting an emphasis on wherever we have land, publicly owned land in particular, building a lot of housing on that land. And, and yeah. you know, they've been helped by the, the state in, in some in, in some level that that cut some of the red tape that allowed for nimbyism, people to say, no, we don't want that high development density. Um, a lot of that red tape has really vanished over the last year. Wow. And and so the because we're land restricted on both sides, the future, as uh, you know, the the public housing director, Alex Baina, told me, is almost a Hong Kongification. We need to be denser. That's the only right. way for And a lot of that density has to do also with putting it near public transit, right? Right. And you do see that starting to come online here in Miami-Dade County. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the Douglas Road Station, Coconut Grove Station, some of the stations further up north towards Hialeah. There's a lot of developments happening very close to these metro stations, which is, you know, what places like Chicago and New York have been doing for decades. We're just playing catch up. Now, Now doing, yeah. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're looking back at how the affordable housing crisis finally became a front and center issue in South Florida this year. Danny Rivera, let me come back to you for a minute because you, you've also recently reported on initiatives that may not seem like the solution to, to this problem. And I'm talking about a City of Miami program that's been buying up a relatively small number of homes for a relatively large price. Is there a warning here about the cost of good intentions in, in this issue? Yeah, I mean, there is. And and again, I want to point to, to Broward County as um, a bit of a contrast with, with things, at least in the city of Miami, because Broward County right now is working on essentially a master plan, like an actual plan for how to build more affordable housing. The city of Miami funded a, a, a study from FIU researchers to come up right. with a plan mm-hmm. to actually allocate the funding they had to the, you know, the get the most bang for your buck. And they rejected it. They outright rejected the plan, okay. which, le- you know, left all these individual decisions up to individual commissioners that have, you know, they want to maintain their districts and in their vision of it without a master plan. And the result is, you know, there's a lot of wasteful spending. I don't know another way to say it. So master plan matters. 
Wilkin, back to Palm Beach County. Can you update us on a much larger bond issue, actually, uh, that involves $200 million for 20,000 affordable and workforce housing units? The county commission says it's progressing, but do housing advocates agree? Yeah, uh, to echo Gerard and Danny's points about density concerns in South Florida, officials in Palm Beach County have not yet pinpointed where to build those 20,000 affordable uh-huh. and workforce housing uh, units. That's still in the air. Uh, but, you know, critics have always had doubts about how the county's new housing subsidies program will encourage developers to build 20,000 affordable units. The key word here is encourage, Tim. Uh-huh. Uh, they're trying to entice developers who may be more interested in higher profit margins margins for uh, market value homes. Um, and so a- as a reminder, the bond is essentially uh, gap funding for developers. Uh, in other words, developers will still need to utilize other funding sources to build those housing if, units. If I can just add one thing, sure. I mean, what the the reality in, in South Florida is most governments, local governments, are incentivizing private development. Right. There's not, we're still not at the point, some parts of the country are there where local governments are building on their own like social housing, their own developments. Right. We're not doing that. We're, the governments here are incentivizing, but there's a lot more incentives now than there were a few years ago. Well, right. and, and Gerard, that brings me to, to, to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is I, I wanted to ask about an interesting report you did recently quoting affordable housing experts who say if these projects are going to work in, in the long run, local governments have to start seeing developers as friends instead of foes. Have developers in South Florida really proven themselves friends, though, of affordable housing in this regard that we've just been discussing? Well, if you're just looking at Broward and and to Danny's point about local governments um, not building the housing themselves, Broward's doing some unique things with public private partnerships. Mm -hmm. So we saw one just open called Seven on Seventh. It's in uh, the middle of downtown Fort Lauderdale, and it's seven stories and half affordable housing and half of it is permanent supportive housing for formerly homeless people. Uh And the county is doing several of these projects. I think the next one is planned for Pompano Beach, where they are working together with developers, where the county will provide the services there and the incentives, obviously, and the gap funding. Um, But the developer will, will build the building. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing that a lot in Broward. It's it's working, although, you know, on on small scales. Right. But Danny, finally, l- let me ask you this. Can all of this affordable housing effort we're finally seeing in South Florida really have the desired effect if we also don't find a way to raise wages in this region above what a tourism dependent economy like ours can pay? The, the short answer is no. Um, public housing director in Miami-Dade, Alex Baina, told me that very clearly. He said the underlying problem here is wages. It's that That is the hardest thing. And because that remains the underlying problem, we can build, build, build. But mm-hmm. it, it, it creates the condition where we have a vicious cycle of inflation. We're the inflation hotspot in the country. A lot of that is because we have, Good you know, hospitality based mm-hmm. economies. People can't afford to live. So then, you know, you're paying 20 something dollars for a cocktail. Yeah. Because the bartender needs a place to rent. So it's a vicious, it becomes a vicious cycle. Um, that is, that remains 
the core issue here is wages. Wilkin, would you agree? I mean, is, is the wage issue probably even more urgent than the affordable housing issue? I mean, the, the one really can't happen without the other. Oh, absolutely. Um, at some point, it's about realizing the math itself, especially in regards to labor force participation. Mm -hmm. Can people afford to live while saving for retirement? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a huge difference between being able to afford versus being comfortable. And a lot of residents in Palm Beach County and across South Florida feel that feel that they aren't comfortable with the uncertainty of the rising cost of living. And you have to consider that before even trying to develop more affordable housing. Gerard, same feelings in Broward County. Can't can't really uh, tackle this affordable housing crisis unless we pay people better. Same thing. And, and even people who I, I, I think what they people I've spoken with term it their house poor, where they, they own a home, um, but paying the mortgage, the insurance, and maybe childcare, and just the other things that come along with the cost of living, they're almost paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Gerard Albert III is our Broward County reporter. Wilkin Brutus is WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter. And Danny Rivero is the station's investigative reporter. Gentlemen, happy holidays. Happy, happy holidays. holidays. Thanks, Still Danny. to come. Looking back at 2023's immigration crisis and the Latin American government crises that helped drive it. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Few parts of the country were untouched by the immigration crisis this year, and South Florida was hardly an exception. 2023 started with a flood of desperate Haitian and Cuban migrants arriving in the Florida Keys in often dangerous sea vessels. The year ended with an unprecedented number of Venezuelans crossing the U.S. southern border and making their way here, often after trekking through the deadly Darien jungle between Colombia and Panama. The wave from Venezuela resulted from the humanitarian crisis choking that country caused by an authoritarian regime. The wave from Haiti pointed to the virtual gang rule that country is under now. And the wave from Cuba was driven by the communist island's ever worsening economic and human rights repression. That link between diluvial immigration and dictatorial government isn't new. But this year it felt heavy even for South Florida especially when, on top of all that, the state of Florida enacted a law targeting undocumented migrants. Joining me now to look back at this is Anthony Pereira. He's director of the Latin America and Caribbean Center at Florida International University here in Miami. Anthony, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Tim. Let's start with the two countries we are used to receiving large waves of migrants from, Haiti and Cuba. Boats and rafts have been landing on South Florida's shores from their shores for decades. But the numbers now have been off the charts. Anthony, did Latin America and Caribbean experts ever expect to see a collapse, an implosion of government like the one that has opened the door to the violent and powerful gangs that have all but taken over Haiti today? I mean, is this unprecedented? I think it is. I mean, there may have been people who were following this who predicted this, but I, I certainly didn't. Um, you know, it's sort of shocking to find out that uh, we had an event on on Haiti last week, to, that there are a few, you know, 3,000 gang members that really have a lot more power right now than than members of the state apparatus. Right. Um, 
And I think uh, that it is shocking. And I think uh, what's interesting maybe about this situation, which maybe differs from crises in the past, is that you see members of the Haitian diaspora here in South Florida really trying to have a voice. You know, they're looking on with despair and they're thinking, I think correctly, this can't go on. Something has to be done. And there are countries that have gotten out of these these very bad, uh, violent situations. Now, the U.S., the U.N., and the international community say they're going to get a handle on this by sending a police assistance force led by Kenya into Haiti. You're from Brazil, Anthony. You've watched that country for years lead multinational efforts to stabilize Haiti. Does this look like the solution or is more intervention going to be needed? That's a great question, Tim. And I, yeah, I did visit the the Brazilian forces in Manusta in 2013 in Haiti. And, you know, there are very mixed feelings in Brazil about their involvement there. And there certainly is an appetite to get involved again. I think people are being being sort of skeptical and, and maybe reserving judgment a little bit about this Kenyan force. It mm-hmm. seems like quite a small force, a thousand police personnel. Um, There aren't the cultural affinities between Kenya and and Haiti that you might have had, say, with a force from French-speaking Africa. And I think a lot of people would like it to succeed, but it looks like a fairly small commitment. You know, the U.S. is devoting $200 to help the force, but this perhaps might have to be uh, reinforced with, with some other initiative somewhere along the way. And as for Cuba, we keep seeing evidence that a more robust private sector is trying to emerge there, but also evidence that the old fossilized communist hardliners are doing their best to keep it from emerging. Is there any political or economic hope for that island while those guys are still alive? I don't see much evidence of that. I mean, as you said, you know, historically, when the Cuban regime has liberalized, let's say, in agriculture, and they'd said they said, you know, let's have more private enterprise in agriculture, the political logic always prevails over the economic. So when they see people prospering and accumulating a bit of capital, they get nervous about the p- political implications of that and the fact that too, they might too have too much independence for people. Right. Yeah. Too much independence, too many, too much autonomy, too many people with independent voices, and they end up shutting it down. They reverse it. Uh, for political reasons, not for economic reasons. And so that stop-start pattern, has we've seen it for years in Cuba. And so I think as long as that mentality endures, they prefer to control a smaller pie than let the pie grow and and perhaps threaten their control over it. Right. And is there any hope for Venezuela while socialist president slash dictator Nicolas Maduro is still in power? He seems to be backing away in fairly cowardly fashion from the agreement he recently made with Venezuela's opposition to hold a fair and transparent presidential election next year. You see any chance of that happening in 2024? Well, I I saw people who were definitely full of hope. I went to the primary election in Doral to see people voting. And in a very festive way and celebrating and, and really hoping for the best with the with the result, which was that Machado was, you know, far and away the, the most popular primary right. candidate. And you're referring to Maria Corina Machado, the, the leading opposition candidate. Yeah. Who won. Yes. That and, and, you know, the fact is she hasn't been recognized by the government yet as a legitimate candidate and, and she may never be. But I, th- I think a lot of people expressed their hope and their desire for her to be a candidate. The U.S. does have has some cards to play in that they could go back on the opening of the Venezuelan sanctions and to and, you know make them tougher tougher again as a signal that they're expecting a more open and transparent process. So I, I do think that people have been impressed 
pressed by Machado's campaign, and it's very unlikely that she could come to power. But there is a strong, I think, symbolic resonance in the fact that so many people voted for her in the in that primary. Ninety-three percent is, is is more or less what she got, which is yeah remarkable. Pretty, now, pretty the, resounding the Maduro, outcome. The Maduro regime's incompetence and brutality is are the key reasons we're seeing so many Venezuelans crossing the U.S. southern border these days. In in fact, Venezuela now sends more migrants over the border than any other nationality. So let me ask you the same sort of question I asked about Haiti. As an international politics expert, Anthony, did you ever expect to see more desperate Venezuelans crossing the Rio Grande than, say, Hondurans? No, I mean, that, you know, that sort of upends all of my preconceptions about how all of this works. Um, I was looking at some data recently about the Venezuelans, and they are, on average, much more highly educated than many immigrant groups. They're much more likely to have gotten a, a college degree, for example. That's encouraging because that means they'll be able to contribute economically in, in ways that maybe other, other immigrants can't. But it's really shocking how long the process has gone on without some kind of stabilization. And the recent saber rattling by Maduro over Essequibo. In Guyana, yeah. And we're talking about two thirds of Guyana's total territory. Yeah. Big chunk of territory, a lot of oil and gas. And the problem is that Maduro is saying we're just going to unilaterally declare sovereignty over this territory. And it's pretty reminiscent of Vladimir Putin, one could say. Yes. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're looking back at the immigration crisis that gripped us this year and at the often dictatorial government in Latin America that drove it. I'm speaking with FIU's Anthony Pereira. So, Anthony, while we're discussing Venezuela and Maduro, that brings us to the larger subject of authoritarian populists, both left wing and right wing, that Latin America and the Caribbean just can't seem to quit. On the right side of the spectrum, we thought things looked better after Jair Bolsonaro lost re-election in Brazil last year. But now we just saw a fairly reactionary populist sworn in as president of Argentina, Javier Millet. How worried should we be about his own authoritarian reflexes? Well, I think, you know, that could become an issue. I mean, Millet ran a very different campaign from what he actually said in his inauguration this this month. You know, on the campaign trail, he was the guy with the chainsaw blowing up the central bank, saying he was going to dollarize. Of course, those two central planks, dollarization and abolition of the central bank, were not mentioned in his inauguration speech. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did say something which I think is interesting and and perhaps worrying, where he said that everything good economically, historically, that's happened in Argentina has been about economic liberalism, has been about markets. But go back to the second half of the 19th century, early 20th century in, in Argentina, there was economic liberalism, but there wasn't a lot of political liberalism. Uh, if, you were, if you were a worker organizing, you were likely to get the police breaking up your meeting. And so what I do worry about is how the government will handle protests if if those occur, because what Millet clearly said in his inauguration was we've got to impose austerity. We have got to reduce the fiscal deficit, which is very sensible and and slash the government, slash government spending. And he did say, you know, the immediate effect of that is going to be bad. It's going to be unemployment. And how long are people going to endure that before they start saying you told us there was light at the end of the tunnel? Where's the light? Quite a bit of pain that could be coming. Yeah, we'll see how he handles that. Let's move up to Central America, meanwhile, to El Salvador, where another populist, Nayib Bukele, had his lapdog Supreme Court bend the Constitution so he can run for another consecutive term next year in February. 
Conservatives in the U.S. seem to love him, though. Why do you think? I think, you know, he appears to offer a solution to a really bad crime and violence situation, a very high homicide rate. And it's it's heavy handed. It's incarcerating some 60,000 people. It's incarcerating people without going through the usual due process. And, you know, I think all of us who analyze Latin American politics have to acknowledge he is very popular for this. Not only popular in El Salvador, he's admired outside of El Salvador. And so I, I think this is something that leaders all across the region have to get to grips with. Is this a sustainable model for Bukele or is there a danger that he will become increasingly autocratic? Right. Um, because if you forfeit your rights to be secure under an autocracy, that doesn't mean that you'll be secure <laughs> for forever. Or right. That in, in the long can... run, which yeah. which I think we saw next door, practically next door in Nicaragua. We can't forget not Nicaragua's leftist dictator, Daniel Ortega, who has now declared war on Miss Universe, who's from <laughs> Nicaragua. Again, is there any hope of dislodging this guy and his henchwoman, his vice president uh, wife from power? It's a very depressing story in Nicaragua because it it just keeps seeming to get worse. And, you know, there was there was a moment of light with protests, with students being very courageous and confronting him a few years ago. And um, all of that seems to have dissipated and he's gotten more tyrannical. And he's also potentially uh, creating a dynasty, right, because his family, um, you know, his 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 kids probably have aspirations to carry on with this dictatorship. And and so yeah, I don't. In the short term, in the short term, it's hard to see light there in Nicaragua. But there are courageous people who have stood up to the regime. There are um, exiles here in the United States who are organizing, who are trying to document human rights abuses. And sometimes, in times of darkness, all one can do is record the abuses. And, and hope for better days when this can become the official record of, of the state yeah. and, and you can turn the page. Now, I also mentioned Nicaragua because it's one of the four countries, along with Cuba, Haiti and Venezuela, that the Biden administration chose this year for a humanitarian migrant parole. And that parole program has proven very popular. But is it a long term solution to America's wrecked immigration system? Well, I did hear some criticism of it from people in the diaspora community in the case of Haiti, in that they thought that, you know, an inordinate number of members of the Haitian National Police were taking advantage of it and weakening the security forces even more. They were all, you know, they're already uh, quite weak, but they were becoming weaker because of that policy. Right. So the, the, the police that we need fighting the gangs in Haiti are, are coming here. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, that's that's not particularly welcome uh, for people trying to survive in, in, in Haiti. So I, I don't think it's a long term solution. It's an understandable humanitarian response to repression and, and human rights violations. But I think what U.S. foreign policy should work for as well is some kind of amelioration of those abuses and changes of those regimes. But it's it's very difficult from the outside. Right. And finally, we should also point out that Florida's new immigration law that goes after undocumented migrants here is also not a long term solution. But was that legislation just a political stunt by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to, to win over Trump voters in the end? Well, it, it's early days, right? I think the legislation came into effect on the 1st of July. Um, Last summer. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I think uh, it does seem to be more about signaling to to people uh, maybe outside of Florida who are voting in primaries than it does 
grapple with the realities of the economy in Florida. For example, I was looking at some stats and in agriculture in Florida, 37% of the workforce consists of non-citizen immigrants. Yeah. Now, now some of those people probably don't have documentation. In construction, 23% of the workforce has uh, it are immigrants, non-citizen immigrants. If you create a law like that and and create fear amongst employers and employees, you may end up shooting yourself in the foot by damaging your economy because the reality is that those sectors and actually, uh, you know, services come far, you know, close behind with a lot of people who are also uh, non-citizen immigrants in the workforce. Um, right. You may end up inadvertently doing damage to your economy and and maybe creating fears that are that are unwarranted. Um, so I, I, I think the jury's out. It's early days. Um, but I, 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 I take as plausible some of the criticisms of this is that it's more about symbolism signaling to, to a base, a political base, than it is about really addressing the issues in the economy locally. Good points, all. Anthony Pereira directs the Latin America and Caribbean Center at Florida International University. Anthony, obrigado and happy holidays. Gracias, Tim. Finally on the Roundup, the media often get knocked for focusing on bad news. So at the end of the year, we at WLRN like to bring you some of what we call moments of joy that we encounter during the course of our news reporting. Here's one to send you off into the Christmas weekend from reporter Julia Cooper and a flamingo named Peaches. It was this past August and I had just graduated from college. I moved back home and was starting an internship at WLRN. Everything was exciting and changing. But then something happened that, as a native Floridian, I'm all too familiar with. A hurricane. As Adalia battered the state, it was hard to find a bright spot. But then there was one, and their name was Peaches. Adalia blew flamingos to places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So when I heard that conservationists wanted to track one of the Adalia flamingos, I knew I had a story. Before being killed off in the 1900s, flamingos were native to Florida, and researchers wanted to know if they could still make it here. Working on the story was just fun. Doing interviews at the zoo I'd grown up visiting and meeting passionate conservationists made me realize I was right where I needed to be. Even my editors couldn't get enough of the birds and their honking. But the icing on the cake... Flamingos have been making their way across the eastern U.S. ever since Hurricane... My story went national. From member station WLRN, Julia Cooper reports. That's NPR's Elsa Chang introducing my very first feature story for WLRN to millions of listeners on All Things Considered. I'm Julia Cooper in Miami. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Merry Christmas, Feliz Navidad, Joyeux Noël, Feliz Natal. WLRN Public Media.